Hello, and welcome to the Outdoor Knoxville Insider Podcast. I'm John Becker, and I'm here with Executive Director of Legacy Parks, Carol Evans. This podcast is brought to you by the Legacy Parks Foundation. Yeah, welcome, and we're so glad to have you here today. And we're starting off our new season with a few episodes dedicated to hiking. And you'll hear stories from local adventurers about where to hike in Knoxville and throughout our surrounding area. We'll get sort of their insider tips on the best places to hike and how to hike and how to join others in hiking. So we hope you'll listen and keep coming back to hear more. They have lots of secret spots, and you can find out more about Legacy Parks Foundation at LegacyParks.org or visit www.OutdoorKnoxville.com to hear about upcoming events that are going on in the Knoxville area. But to highlight the Legacy Parks Foundation has a Hoppy Hour event on June 25th at Sunspot on the Roof. It is an awesome environment with terrific happy hour specials, free tacos, all supporting Legacy Parks. And we hope you'll join us for that event. But without further ado, Carol, will you introduce our first guest? Yeah, happy, happy to, John. Our guest this episode is John Quillen. John's a Knoxville-based mountaineer and adventurer. And most importantly, John has just summited Mount Everest in 2018, so last year. Plus, he's climbed mountains throughout the world. He regularly trains, however, right here in our own urban wilderness. And you mentioned uh, climbing Everest. We've read a lot about that in the last month or so with climbers dying because of the crowds that are on top of the summit. And one of the things that I think you'll take away from our conversation with John is that he's not only a mountaineer, but he is a humanitarian. And what he did uh, on that mountain is something that's really extraordinary. He reveals that. Yes, you need to listen to hear, but it is so timely to hear what John did on the mountain. You're exactly right. So today he'll tell us about his adventures and talk real, real openly about his favorite places to hike and train. So you'll get in on some of his, uh, some of his secrets uh, about all the great trails right here in, in East Tennessee. We're back, hosted at Sunspot, and wow, do we have a terrific podcast. Outdoor Knoxville Insider, we're going to get into some specific trails that our guest is going to run down, not just in the Knoxville area, but also the region that he uses to train. Uh, But all you need to know about this guy really is that he's an Everest man. Uh, that's at the title of John Quillen's uh, biography, uh, and John, it's great to have you. I appreciate Thanks it. Thanks for having me, John. Yeah, and the thing that I think stands out more than the accomplishment of summiting Everest is your journey to get there, and I want to talk specifically about the humanity that you displayed on your way up that mountain. And let me just set the scene for our viewers, our listeners. Excuse me, I'm a TV guy. Um John, you're headed up, with, which is an amazing uh, accomplishment in and of itself to try to summit this, uh, the highest peak in the world. But on the way up, you run into a Sherpa who has been severely hurt. Uh, describe what, what you saw and where it was on the mountain. Well, we were on our summit push, which was the final leg of the big journey, and uh, going up the Lhotse face, which is the most technical part of an Everest climb. It's a 65-degree kind of ice pitch and uh, some rocks had gotten dislodged and unfortunately uh, it hit a Sherpa in the head. Sherpa don't wear helmets and so it pretty much split his skull open. So we were three days from the summit and presented with this interesting situation. I'm not a medical person so... But you knew this guy was hurt and not only that but you'd seen other climbers pass him by. Unfortunately that's sort of one of the Everest paradigms is that folks go there to 
collect a summit and they're not so worried about anything other than the summit. And it's different than the other Himalayan peaks. Yeah, people walk by them, and, uh, but, but me and Neil Kushwaha, my friend, and, and our two Sherpa, you know, kind of pulled him off the ropes and helped get him back down the mountain. Uh, but yeah, that, that's that's an unfortunate footnote to Everest. At the moment that you were doing that, did you think this may cost me the summit? Oh, I thought that was the one thing that had cost me the summit. But in retrospect, that was the one thing that got me to the summit. Because after that event, I had already kind of given up on the idea of summiting. So I got into sort of a, a relaxed state. I said, well, I'm a tourist on Everest now. I'm going to take photos, GoPro. And I was just so not focused on the summit at that point that when the summit became a possibility, I was, I was kind of ready to go up and do it. So doing that actually got me to the summit. The weather cleared miraculously, and you were able to summit. Your photos up there are absolutely stunning. What was that moment like when you hit the summit and could see as far as the eye can see? Well, I probably set a record for being the slowest human to reach the summit of Everest. <laughs> I left at uh, 7.30 p.m. on May the 22nd. I summited at 10 a.m. the next day. So everyone had already abandoned the summit. They were fleeing in exodus on the way down. And my Sherpa and I were there and got to spend just an unheard of 45 minutes on top of the world. So we had just unrivaled views of Makalu, Lhotse, Choyu, all the 8,000-meter peaks in, in Nepal. And, and it was just a blessing from God. And I think had we gone the day before, the weather was questionable. And I already had frostbite from going up this day, and I would have definitely probably lost some toes had we gone up the other day. We're going to share some photos of that summit just so our, our folks who listen to this can see it online as well. But um, what got it in you that said, hey, I think Everest is a possibility for me? Because you're how old? I'm 52. 52. Yeah. Um, a lot of people at that age may say, listen, I've aged out of this option. Yeah, that was my excuse for getting up there so late. Right? <laughs> <laughs> I was doing the heart rate calculations. That'll my blow. maximum is, what, 220 minus 50, right? But, uh, no, I was going to do Everest 15 years ago, and that was my goal. When I got into mountaineering, I was one of those Everest guys. Somewhere along the way, I lost the Everest ambition and got into these remote peaks. I wanted to do stuff that wasn't so overdone. And it just so happened that this last year, I got invited on three different expeditions. And I said, you know, there's something, that the mountain's pulling me that way. So I needed to look at Everest. And, and I started looking, and think, my finances lined up, my work lined up. And I said, the, the God's talking to me. I need to at least go make, give it a shot. But in my head, it wasn't, I'm going to go climb Everest. It was, I'm going to put in my one out of three summit attempts on Everest, because that's the statistic on it. And uh, by, the, by the grace of God, I got, got it in the first shot. You're an East Tennessee boy. Uh, tell us a little bit about growing up and what uh, sort of infused you with the mountaineering spirit. You know, I grew up in Morristown and, and roamed the woods fishing and hunting and chasing squirrels and everything that we tried to kill in those days. And then we grew up and I wanted to witness wildlife instead of kill it. So that took me into, uh, you know, backpacking and, and rock climbing and, and just anything outdoors, you know. That, that was my generation. So, you know, I was a Smokies guy for many, many years and then got into off-trail stuff and backpacking. And, uh, that just sort of naturally progressed to, I want to go do Mount Rainier one day. 
and see how I do at altitude. And went and did Rainier and tolerated it. You know, you don't you don't do well on Rainier. You tolerate it tolerates you. And then that led to Denali in Alaska, and then Russia, and then South America, and then three or four Himalayan climbs. So it just sort of progressed that way. Let's talk about East Tennessee in the landscape because you can't do really any elevation uh, tests here, but you can train. So what in your backyard have you devoted time to? Well, you know, I, I live at the foot of the urban wilderness at uh, Baker Creek is my front yard. So uh, I tell people when they develop that, I was on an expedition in Tibet when it really got finished and I came back and it's like, you know, Disneyland was there all of a sudden. And I got to go run and bike and I'd been training over there. When I did Denali in 2007, I was hauling tires up and down what's now Red Bug Crest Trail. You know, so I knew this place, but it didn't look like what it did when I was over there training. And now it's, it is my training zone. I did a bulk of my Everest training running up Best Medicine Trail, going around the Sycamore Loop, and getting some good trail miles in over there. And then, of course, on the weekends, go to the Smokies and do some off-trail stuff. And when you're looking at a climb uh, even not as arduous as Everest, what kind of training are you doing? How many hours a week are you having to put in uh, of work to ensure that you're in a, of a good help to do something like that? That's a good question. At my age, everything has to be calibrated for your joints, right? I mean, you know, my, my I let my knees are not what a 28-year-old's are, and so being the old man in the group, you got to do something that's easy. Mountain biking's kind of become my new go-to, just because of the impact on the knees and stuff like that. So again, the, the urban wilderness, the South Loop, I would get out some mornings and do a whole South Loop, right? Try to get my heart rate up. The 12 miles or so. Yeah, 12 or 14, depending on how much you want to add to it. And I could do that from the house. And then in the evenings, I would go to the gym for maybe an hour and a half and just do some upper body because you need to keep your core and, and everything else in good shape to, to do all the upper body stuff that's required on the Himalayan peaks. And for people who haven't been at that elevation, explain how slowly time moves. I've seen photographs of somebody showing me their tent that looks like it may be 15, 20 yards away, and they say it took me maybe an hour to make it from where you see me to the tent. It may be not that extreme, but give people a sense of what it's like to function at that altitude. Well, in mountaineering, they say it's always harder than it looks, it's always farther than it looks, and it's always harder than it looks. Yeah. So everything is just, you know, a, a fraction of, of the way it appears. But uh, on Everest especially, I mean, you've got four camps to the summit. There is a place called the Western Coombe where you're walking two miles, but that two miles can take you six hours, and it's almost on flat ground. You know, it's just because you're at altitude going from 20,000 to 22,000 feet, you, can, you may think you're moving smoking, but you're not. You know, you're, you're dragging up through there. Of course, the Sherpa's always racing back and forth. They're always making you look like an idiot and making you feel very humbled. Uh, the Sherpa are the powerhouses of Everest. What about the mental game? Oh, it's all mental. 100% mental. And going back to what I mentioned earlier, since I had sort of discharged the notion of summoning from my head, I think I lowered my anxiety level to the point that I was able to summon. And that's how I think this thing was so providential for me. I'm a Presbyterian, so I have to throw the Calvinist part in there. But it's kind of like it was meant to be because everybody's so focused on the summit on Everest. It's such an expensive thing. You're spending anywhere from 40 to 100 grand. And, it's, and that's why people walk by people. They think, well, the person behind me will take care of this guy. And uh, so I, once I kind of gave that up, I was just in position mentally to go to the south call at 26,000 feet in the death zone. We spent three nights in the, in the death zone. Nobody spends three nights in the death zone. 
we had extra oxygen that people gave us descending, and we were just laying around relaxing. I've got videos walking around the South Call shooting GoPro images, you know, of, of all these landmarks that I'd only ever read about. And I was like, well, I'm going to go for the summit at 7.30. I may get up to the balcony. I may get up to the South Summit, but whatever. You know, it's just, it's all about your mental attitude. Three days in the death zone. Wow, that sounds <laughs> really exciting. Uh, why do they call it that? Well, because your body at 26,000 feet, 8,000 meters, is, is basically wasting away. You can't process proteins. You can't, you know, there's a lot of things your body can't do without bottled oxygen. Of course, I was on oxygen. I'm not a candidate to climb Everest without it. I got frostbite several years ago, another peak. So not, without oxygen, it's not an option for me. So, as a matter of fact, last year only one person summited without oxygen. That gives you an idea of how serious an endeavor that is, right? So we were sipping oxygen and just cruising around like tourists up there with the, with our good weather and our just, you know, but our mindset, I think, was a 100% contributing factor to our success. So when you translate that to other people and, and other activities, has that informed the way you approach other things in, in life now, just adopting a mindset of, hey, the intensity isn't really what's going to get me there. It's a, it's a relaxed confidence. You know, Everest for me was the most cumulative experience in my life. It's kind of like everything I'd ever done in my life to that point got me to the summit of Everest. And I mean not just from training and being outdoors or backpacking or rock climbing to being in a stressful meeting at work. Because you have some political issues on Everest, right? You have some rope fixing. You have some you have some leadership issues. We had a leader, serious leadership issue. We had a leader kind of abandoned our climb. We had to form our own little team, myself and Neil Kishwaha and Ertu Sherpa. We said, we're going in our own. You know, forget all this stuff. We'll stock our own camps. We'll do it. So, you know, th th everything kind of came into play. But as far as it applying to things now, Everest was easier than the other Himalayan peaks I had done simply because there's so much infrastructure already there. Like there's fixed ropes, you know, you have the Sherpa, you have the oxygen. We've, I've been on peaks before, like going an alpine style, where we're setting our camps and we're doing all this stuff. So Everest was a little bit more relaxing. I don't know that it translates to other things, but the other peaks certainly do. What is your advice? To, let's bring it back in, down in elevation to, to places around here. Um, to people who want to get out and explore a little bit more, not just of the urban wilderness in the South Knoxville, but other places in the region, do you have some things that are high on your list? You know, people sell themselves short here in, in East Tennessee, and I've done a lot of backpacking. I get to hike with a lot of notorious outdoor folks, and, and they're all like, oh, I don't want to do Everest, I want to do the AT, and this and I said, you would, you would perform on Everest great. If you can put on a backpack and go hike up to Lacan and back down, you're a candidate for Everest. You know, what the training I did in the Smokies was the training that got me to Everest because I can only go out west or go with the Himalayas occasionally. If you have that mental toughness that says I can get up this, or if you're a triathlete, for instance, triathletes are great mountaineers. The only th problem that the triathletes have is they have to do that downtime like you were talking about. Can you sit in a tent in a storm for three days? If you can't do that, and some of these type A people cannot do that, I don't have any problem laying around a tent because I don't have a cell phone, I don't have anybody bugging me at work, you know what I'm saying? But it destroys some people mentally Absolutely. they need that activity absolutely huh. um, did you do any mental practice as a as a presbyterian or as uh, use any eastern philosophy to use ways to sort of calm you down yoga that kind of thing visualization i watched every video that's ever been made about everest and i'm including every youtube video i knew every feature of that mountain in my head blindfolded 
So there was no surprises to me, and I'm a worst-case scenario person. It was like, if I fall off this ladder in the Kumbu Icefall, then what? If I get altitude sickness on the load sea face, then I had an A, B, and C plan contingency in my head that I never had to utilize. Now, on Summit Day, I got, I got frostbite, so I had to make a very important decision up at the balcony at uh, 28,000 feet. Do I push on, maybe lose some toes, or do I turn around? And because I'd had frostbite before, I knew, you know, I've already done the damage. I might as well go on up and whatever I've done, I've done. It worked out okay for me. That's gotten some other people in trouble, you know. But I, I felt like it was just kind of meant for me at that point. It was like my Sherpa said, you got one hour to get to the summit. <laughs> and I was like, I'll make it. <laughs> what What's next then? After you summit Everest as a mountaineer, that is the pinnacle for most. Well, we have a huge project lined up for next year, and we're calling it our Vision 2020, and it's going to be even bigger than Everest, if you can imagine that. But it's going to involve the Karakoram. That's all I can say right now. We're trying to line up sponsors, and if anyone here is interested, get in touch with me. But we have a big, huge project that will eclipse even Everest. I put together a really good team of, of pretty well-known uh, mountaineers, including Neil Kishwawa and Andrea Rigotti, who've got some big summits under their belt. And we've been, we've been sort of working this thing up, and it's going to be... Uh, We'll be in Pakistan probably next summer. Well, we'll stay tuned for that. In the meantime, what do you suggest? You talk about that planning you did for Everest, and I think that is certainly something that our listeners can apply to their own adventures as well, um, visualization and thinking about what they may need. What, what do you take on the trail with you uh, always? Are there two or three things that are always in your pack? Well, in the Smokies, of course, it's different than what you're carrying on Himalayan sure, Peak. I don't have sure. to worry about falling into a crevasse. That's right, but local, lo- locally is right. what I'm referring to. Yeah, so I always, I mean, there's certain things. I always have a knife. Uh, I always have a good bivy kit in case I have to bivy out and always have a flashlight. You know, the two most important pieces of gear in the Smokies, I think, are number one, your footwear, and two, your sleeping bag because those are the things you're gonna, that are going to save your life. So I always have a good sleeping bag and some good, good shoes. And... Uh, but yeah, it's just different, specific for your activity. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What What are good shoes? Well, not necessarily the brand, but what are you looking for when you're buying a shoe? Well, if it's the winter time in the Smokies, I want something that can go through some streams and not wet me out and get my feet, you know, hypothermic. Because that can take you out. Yeah, that that'd be it. It's a deal breaker. And on the big mountains, you know, you got to think about the little stuff. Like if your boot blows off the side of the mountain up up at your tent, you're done. I mean, you're not getting off that mountain, so you always want to think about tying that boot into your tent or staking it out with an ice screw. In the Smokies, you don't want your your Crocs to get washed downstream when you're doing a big crossing because then you're screwed and you're not getting out of there. You know, it's just a different mindset. You got to flex in and out of your situation. Mm-hmm. How about sleeping bag wise in the Smokies? Do you use a year-round bag? Do you kind of tailor it if you're in the summer? You might use a light one. You know, a lot of people go to down, but I stay with synthetic because if synthetic gets wet, it's all always going to keep me warm. And a lot of people are big down advocates because the new down stuff is nice, but I'm telling you, when down's wet, it's not doing you any good. So I stick with the synthetic just in case I, I go headlong in that creek and I have to get out and get warm real quick. Have there ever been any experiences in particular in the Smokies where you were sweating it, where you thought, you know what, I've gotten myself into a situation and I've really got to think about how I'm going to get myself out? 
the most dangerous thing I've ever run into in the Smokies, and people are going to laugh, is yellow jackets. Mm-hmm. I've been in the middle of the backcountry and had, you know, you put your stick in a hole and somebody will get hit 20 times by yellow jackets. Suddenly that person's going into some kind of anaphylactic situations, and you know, you're laughing because if that happens, that's the most dangerous thing you'll run into in the Smokies. It's not bears or anything else, it's yellow jackets. Wow. So I take, I take Benadryl for that. Yeah, that's a must-have. That's a must. Always carry Benadryl. Uh, anything else med-wise that you would think? Because I think that's uh, that's really interesting. On high altitude is dexamethasone. That's your rescue drug. If you get uh, high altitude cerebral edema or pulmonary edema, dexamethasone is a steroid. It's a rescue drug. It's saved lives. I've given it to people and gotten them off of mountains. I've seen them inject people with it. When people are suffering from altitude sickness, dexamethasone is a lifesaver at high altitude. And don't take this the wrong way. You are 52. Are you often the oldest person in the group or on a climb? You know, it's getting older. People are living longer. And there are people, you know, that are summiting mountains in their 70s. And so, no, I mean, sometimes I'm at the higher end of that range. And on this trip, I was that was a little bit on the higher end. But I didn't feel like, oh, I'm really, really the old guy. But that was my excuse for summiting so late and taking 24 hours anyway. For people who will, who will never summit Everest, um, what can you equate having been there? Are there? Is there any other experience in mountaineering that's more accessible that might offer a, a similar feeling of accomplishment? No. <laughs> it is the velvet rope of mountaineering. And, you know, people ask me all the time, what was it like being up there? And I just, I can't even describe what it feels like to go from the south summit to the summit and look at all these features, the Cornish Traverse, the Hillary Step, and, and, and float across those things. And be, being up there is just the most ethereal experience of my life. And I, I'll never, ever recreate that. It's just, there's no way to even, it feels like you've touched heaven. I can only imagine, and I'll only ever be able to imagine. <laughs> well, you never know, John. Well, no, I appreciate you taking me there because your description is extraordinary. Thank you. Um, and uh, you talked a little bit about what's next. Anything else that you'd offer for our listeners about um, what what made you the mountaineer you are living here in East Tennessee? Well, you know, I really appreciate Legacy Parks because, again, I'm, I'm a big consumer of what they do. I climb at the Crag, which was formerly Imes Crag, which now Knoxville owns it. I bike in the urban wilderness. I swim in the rivers and play in the creeks. You know, and, and to see this preserved in the way that Legacy Parks is doing this, I'm glad to be able to help with that that effort in any way. So, you know, I'm a son of the Smokies and a son of East Tennessee, and, and, and I got to the summit of Everest, and I'm not a super high-altitude performer, and I'm not an elite athlete. I'm just a slow, measured kind of person. So what I would say is, you know, if that sounds like you or ever did sound like you, don't let age limit you in anything you wanted to do. I was 38 years old before I ever took on Rainier, and then at 52, I got to the summit of Everest. Actually, 51. John, you uh, lay out the possibilities that life brings us. <laughs> we appreciate the conversation. Thanks so much, Thank man. you, John. I really, appreciate the opportunity. Absolutely. Great to hang with you, and thank you for listening to the Outdoor Knoxville Insider. Hope you got some good little tips that you can use around here, and also a little inspiration to perhaps summit something you never thought you could. We'll see you down the trail, and thanks again to Sunspot for hosting. Thanks so much for listening to the Outdoor Knoxville Insider Podcast, brought to you, of course, by Legacy Parks Foundation. And if you like what you heard, subscribe to the podcast and be sure to give us a five-star rating. And you can follow us on social media at Legacy Parks on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter.